Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And our first uh, article is Governors Extend Lockdowns as Global Cases Top 2.1 Million Cases. Top Trump Guidelines to Allow States to Decide on Reopening U.S. Jobless Claims Soar. New data shows how chunks of the U.S. economy froze in March. Business executives tell President Trump that a lot more coronavirus testing is needed to get Americans back to work. And New York is set to require people wear face coverings in public. Wall Street Journal's Shelby Holiday has latest on the pandemic. Governors extend their lockdown order Thursday as the Trump administration prepared to detail federal guidelines to reopen the economy that would leave decision-making largely up to the states. Globally, confirmed cases of the virus passed 2.1 million, with the number of deaths worldwide topping 140,700. According to data from John Hopkins University, more than 31,500 people in the U.S. have died from the virus, according to the data. President Trump planned to outline new federal guidelines for opening up the country that will give governors the responsibility to decide how to restart the economy. The guidelines come as lawmakers and business leaders press the administration to expand virus testing. And days after Trump said that he, not governors, was the final arbiter on when to reopen the country, Uh, You're going to call your own shots, Mr. Trump told the governors on a call Thursday, according to a person who was briefed on the matter. We'll be standing right alongside of you, and we're going to get our country open. California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, described the new guidelines approach, which he said was based on country and state-specific conditions, as thoughtful and judicious. It certainly was in line with what we were hoping to hear, said Mr. Newsom, who added that he was only on the call with Mr. Trump for the first 40 minutes. Groups of governors this week said they would coordinate regional reopening plans with an emphasis on testing and contact tracing measures to better control the virus's spread as social distancing measures loosen. A group of bipartisan governors in seven Midwestern states, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky, on Thursday outlined a new coalition similar to those formed by leaders along the East and West Coast. We recognize that our economies are all relying on each other, and we must work together to safely reopen them so hard-working people can get back to work and businesses can get back on their feet, the governor said in a joint statement. In New York, the hardest-hit U.S. state, Governor Andrew Cuomo extended shutdown orders for non-essential businesses and public gatherings until at least May 15th, though the rate of infection and hospitalization hospitalization has slowed and the number of new confirmed cases stabilized. Wisconsin and Missouri also extended their stay-at-home measures. He also stated, he also said the state would send 100 ventilators to neighboring New Jersey, which has the second highest confirmed infections of any U.S. state.
More than 60 people died recently in an outbreak at a New Jersey nursing home. Chicago officials this week said they had succeeded in slowing the spread of the virus with new Wuhan flu cases now doubling every 12 days, down from every two to three days a month ago. Officials cautioned that the number of cases overall was still rising, however, making it too early to begin easing restrictions, which include the closure of a beloved lakefront trail, as well as parks and playgrounds amid a general stay-at-home order. As of Wednesday, the city had 10,264 reported cases of the Wuhan flu and 386 deaths. Michigan's infection rate jumped back over 1,000 new daily cases after two days of lower growth. On Wednesday, the state reported 28,059 cases, an increase of 1,366 with 1,921 dead. Detroit Mayor Mike Dugan reported the city's death toll rose to 45 uh, rose by 45 to 469 with another 409 dead in the broader Wayne County according to Michigan State statistics. We are going to see these kinds of numbers a little bit longer said Mr. Dugan but his briefing did contain one hopeful update. The city's convention center transformed into a thousand bed field hospital for Wuhan flu patients had only 16 patients six days after opening. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio on Thursday called for a federal bailout for the city, noting the bailouts of banks and the auto industry in the past. How about bailing out the nation's largest city, Mr. de Blasio said. How about bailing out the epicenter of this crisis? The city Tuesday said 3,778 people who likely died from the virus didn't get tested or died before results arrived. Officially, more than 10,000 people in New York City have died from the pandemic. Washington, D.C. reported its highest single-day increase in the Wuhan flu deaths this week as officials braced for the peak in hospitalizations, which they said could come as late as the end of May. Mayor Muriel Bowser extended closures for Washington's non-essential businesses, that's Washington, D.C., by the way, non-essential businesses and other social distancing measures until at least May 15th. An additional 5.2 million Americans last week sought unemployment benefits as the pandemic shut down large segments of the U.S. economy, raising the total for a month to 22 million. Programs designed to ease the economic damage are showing signs of strain. The Small Business Administration said funding had been exhausted for the $350 billion paycheck protection plan program and it won't be accepting new aid applications or enrolling new lenders. U.S. stocks swung between small gains and losses following mixed trading in Europe and Asia. New Chinese export restrictions are exuberating, or exasperating excuse me, the chronic shortage of protective gear in the U.S. face masks. Test kits and other medical equipment bound for the U.S. are sitting in warehouses across China 
unable to receive necessary official clearance, some suppliers and brokers told the Wall Street Journal. Chinese officials have said the policies instituted this month are intended to ensure the quality of exported medical products and to make sure needed goods aren't being shipped out of China. They have created bottlenecks at a time of urgent need, according to the suppliers, brokers, and the State Department memos. In the UK, the government extended a national lockdown for at least three more weeks. We need to be patient a while longer, said the UK Foreign Security Secretary Dominic Raab. The number of people in UK hospital beds with the Wuhan flu has started to fall, but the UK's chief scientist, scientific advisor Patrick Valance said restrictions should be maintained to prevent another flare-up. Meanwhile, Brazil President Javier Bolsonaro, who has said the risk for the Wuhan flu is low and called for Brazil to stay open for business, fired his health minister Thursday after the two clashed over how to handle the pandemic. In Japan, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Shinzo Abe expanded a state of emergency to the whole country after the death toll reached a daily high of 17 on Wednesday, bringing the total to 136. Under Japanese law, the state of emergency doesn't force any business to close, but has led many offices to institute work-from-home policy and cause stores to pull down their shutters. In Italy, the heart of the pandemic in Europe, many critics have faulted regional and national authorities for the death toll in the Lombardy region, which has recorded 11,400 Wuhan flu fatalities. Italian prosecutors have opened investigations into whether this, whether there was culpability negligence in specific deaths such as nursing homes. France remains in lockdown while other European countries begin to lift some restrictions. German Chancellor Angela Merkel announced plans Wednesday to gradually reopen the nation, even as it recorded 315 Wuhan flu deaths, the first 24 hours counts above 300. As European nations consider next steps to reopen their economies, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said the country strongly supports a plan from the group of 20 that allows low-income economies to suspend their debt payments to free up money to fight the pandemic in their nations, and added the U.S. was exploring further options to relieve the debt burdens in these countries. China reported 46 new Wuhan flu cases, 34 of them imported, and no new deaths as of midnight on Wednesday. There have been more than 83,000 infections and more than 3,300 deaths in China, according to the data from John Hopkins University. Authorities in Wuhan, the coronavirus pandemic's original epicenter, have started testing for antibodies among thousands of people returning to work and others without symptoms to gain a clearer picture of immunity levels in the city and try to prevent a second wave of disease. Initial results suggest many people were infected without realizing it. So there you go. That is, uh, in some ways, at the end, good news if people have uh, 
uh, have resistance to this and no problems. That is a good thing. And now that we can move on from there, I have saved uh, some um, some articles that I was seeing through here. Hold on, let me uh, get to them. It's a little different when I get these articles on my computer. Uh, let's see. Let me see where they're saved at here. Okay, here's one of them. A reckoning for the WHO or the World Health Organization. A Trump's funding pause may finally get the UN agency's attention. This is from the editorial board. President Trump's Tuesday decision to withhold funding from the World Health Organization or WHO should shatter the pretense of agency's leaders who had taken American support for granted. While the U.S. investigates the degraded agency's Wuhan failures, the White House can outline a path for WHO to regain America's confidence. WHO failed in its basic duty and must be held accountable, said Mr. Trump, who placed a hold on funding for 60 to 90 days. He added that if the agency had done its job, this would have saved thousands of lives and avoided worldwide economic damage. The president isn't exaggerating. From the start of the crisis, WHO leadership let political considerations color what should have been unbiased public health advice. The decision to oppose early travel bans and to, de- and to delay declaring a public health emergency of international concern were partially or particularly deadly. Instead of demanding more transparency from Beijing, which has provided dubious data and punished domestic truth-tellers, WHO officials echoed Chinese claims. The world needs a competent global institution to provide untainted public health advice and coordinate responses to international disease outbreaks. But the WHO has become less focused on its original mission in recent decades and its waste money promoting government-run health care and attacking taboo or tobacco companies. Excuse me. The coronavirus or the Wuhan flu pandemic has exposed the agency's process for declaring emergencies as prone to politicization while its alienation of responsible nations like Taiwan undermines the agency's global mission. Director General Tedros, uh, however you say his name, has shown how easily the top job can be abused and the Trump administration should demand the role be limited to more technocratic functions. Democrats and the media are accusing Mr. Trump of trying to distract from the administration's Wuhan flu missteps by attacking the WHO. The White House has made well-publicized mistakes, but that doesn't absolve the United Nations agency. It's possible to critique the president without defending the WHO and its deference to the Chinese Communist Party. 
A more responsible question is whether withholding funding amid a pandemic will do more harm than good. But some estimate only about 15% of the WHO budget is dedicated to pandemic response. After Dr. Ted Gross shrugged off Mr. Trump's criticism last week, withholding funds can focus minds at the top of the agency without endangering work being done now. There's also a question of authority. The president can't permanently end WHO funding without congressional support, and the administration will need to work with Congress to attach significant strings for future U.S. disbursements. But the White House believes it can legally divert previously allocated money from the WHO for other related purposes. Another worry is that China will increase its dominance at the WHO if the U.S. reduces its financial commitments. But WHO's statement now frequently follows Beijing's line, which is why Chinese propaganda outlets tout them so often. With China's preferred director general criticizing Washington and praising Beijing as a model, what influence does the U.S. have to lose? As recently as Monday, Dr. Ted Gross expressed confidence that Mr. Trump wouldn't act on his financial threat. He certainly was misplaced, as it has been since the outbreak began. Another condition for restored U.S. support should be the Director General's resignation. So there you go. That is definitely true. They have definitely lost their their smarts there. Because they are no longer staying with what they're supposed to be doing. Okay, moving on with something else. Joe Biden's hashtag MeToo movement. The former vice president asks us not to believe the woman. This is from um, the editorial board also. If there is a silver lining to the ugly hashtag MeToo accusation against Joe Biden, it is that the reluctance of the left and the media to pursue it as vigorously as charges against other men suggests they may have discovered that principles such as due process and the presumption of innocence still matters in America. Or... So we hope. The accusations against the presumptive Democratic nominee for president comes from Tara Reid, a former Senate staffer for Mr. Biden. In 1993, she says then Senator Biden pinned her to a wall, put his hand under her skirt, and digitally penetrated her. On Sunday, the New York Times carried a story that cited a friend who says Miss Reed told her about the incident right after it, had, it is alleged to have happened. It also cited her brother and another friend who said she's told them over the years. The friends were anonymous. Mr. Biden denies the accusations unequivocally, but here's the complications. Mr. Biden has long embraced the view that women must be believed on sexual assault, except apparently for Ms. Reed. Mr. Biden has a long and convoluted history here. 
When Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of sexually harassing her, Mr. Biden, as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, insisted she would have to make her case publicly so Mr. Thomas could answer the charges. In 1994, for their book, Strange Justice, he told Jane Meyer and Jill Abramson that he acted with fairness to Thomas, which, in retrospect, he didn't deserve. He later apologized to Miss Hill. Now he wants the fairness standard for himself. Mr. Biden has long painted himself as a champion for victims of abuse and harassment, saying his proudest legislation achievement was the 1994 Violence Against Women Act. As vice president, he appointed the first White House advisor on violence against women and served as point man for the Obama administration's effort to change the culture of campus towards sexual assault and harassment. This turned out to mean throwing protections for accused students out the window and allowing the minimum standard of evidence to conclude guilt. After Mr. Biden had left office, Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, was accused by Christine Blasey Ford of sexual assaulting her when the two were in high school. Mr. Biden spoke generally at the time about these kinds of he said, she said cases involving a public figure. For women to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally, he told reporters, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real. Whether or not she forgets facts, whether or not it's been made worse or better over time. Again, except now. The accusations against Mr. Biden has also exposed the double standards of the media. When Mr. Kavanaugh was the target, for example, the New York Times reported Julie Swetnick's charges, including that she's seen Mr. Kavanaugh at high school parties where women were gang raped the same day she made them. They were smears backed up by no evidence. There's been much less media appetite to report on Miss Reed's claims. Times editor Dean Baquet waited 19 days to report her allegations and was asked by his own media columnist why Mr. Kavanaugh was treated differently. His answer? So, I thought in Miss Reed's case, if the New York Times was going to introduce this to readers, we needed to introduce it with some reporting and perspective. Kavanaugh was in a very different situation. It was a live, ongoing story that had become the biggest political story in the country. It was just a different news judgment moment. I'm sure it was. We said at the time that we didn't know if Miss Blasey Ford was telling the truth, and we don't know whether Miss Reed is now. When women make serious charges, they deserve to be taken seriously. But that shouldn't mean assuming an accused man must be lying. The right way to proceed is to decline to make a judgment and examine the claims and supporting evidence. In the case of Miss Blasey Ford, no cooperation was forthcoming. All of this is called due process and the presumption of innocence. 
These perceptions apply to everyone, including those who would deny them to others, such as Mr. Biden. So there's a lot going on out there that's not being covered right now because of the coronavirus, and many people out there don't want to uh, be talking about them because it's not in their best interests. So moving on from there, let's see what else we got. The lucky stay at home 37%. I don't know whether that's lucky or not. Most Americans do not have the luxury from working at home. Among the blessings of modern American economy is that so many of us can work from home. This is good for both the economy and the individuals whose paychecks keep coming in, coming even in the midst of a lockdown. Not all Americans have this option. A newly released study called How Many Jobs Can Be Done at Home reckon that 37% of all U.S. jobs can plausibly be done at home, meaning that nearly two-thirds cannot. The study's author from the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute added that their 37% estimate is at the upper bound of what might be feasible. Along with other studies, this one also found that those in jobs that can be done from home typically earn more. By their calculations, for example, 37% of jobs that can be done at home account for 46% of all wages. There are also variations across cities and industries with San Francisco and Washington having more jobs that can be done at home than, say, Fort Myers or Grand Rapids and someone in finance more likely to be able to work from home than a construction worker. Those who have stressed the need to get our economy up and running again are sometimes criticized for favoring profit over people. But the Becker-Friedman paper underscores that those lower down on the socioeconomic scale are most in need of a reopening for their livelihoods. As significant, the decision about when and how to reopen are largely being made by people who have the luxury of working from home. The Becker-Friedman study comes as a good reminder that the majority of American workers aren't so fortunate and that their perspectives should be included when the big decisions are being made. And where's the rest of the article? That looks like the end of that article. But it's true. We should think about those who can't work from home. Now, I can work from home, but... They don't have me working from home. They have me going into work, so uh, that's good for me. All right, I think I have time for this one. Nope, I'll have to close out here and save this article for the next half hour. So this is Bill Feltham. I'm going to close this half hour now, and when we come back, our next article will be by the editorial board, And they're talking about voter suppression strategy, which is very important. So grab your drinks and grab your ice cream, and we'll be back shortly. 
Hi, this is Bill Feldham coming back to you for part two of the Wall Street Journal. And we're going to pick off where, pick up where we left off, the voter suppression strategy. Democrats win big in Wisconsin by promoting false ballot fears. Remember all those cries and lamentations about voter suppression in Wisconsin's primary election last week? We told you it was a myth. And sure enough, turns out was huge, and Democrats rolled up victories up and down the ballot. Some suppression. In the most significant race, progressive uh, Dan or Dane County Judge Jill Karofsky trounced sitting conservative state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly. Miss Karofsky. 10.6-point victory made her the second challenger to defeat a Supreme Court incumbent in 53 years. Election results were delayed by a week to allow absentee ballots to be counted after a partisan Donnie Brook that had to be settled by the state and U.S. Supreme Court. After the GOP legislator refused to delay the election because of the Wuhan Wuhan flu, Democrats howled that Republicans were trying to disenfranchise their voters. But more than 1.5 million ballots were cast, the second highest for a state Supreme Court contest in more than a decade. And about 80% were mailed in. Miss Karofsky benefited from huge turnout in Dane and Milwaukee counties thanks to the election confluence with the Democratic Party primary. Had the election been postponed until June, liberal turnout would likely have been much lower since the presidential primary would have long been irrelevant after Bernie Sanders' dropout. Republicans may have disenfranchised many of their own voters who tend to be older and perhaps feared voting in person if they hadn't requested an absentee ballot. Justice Kelly won on smaller vote share than the, uh, than the 2019 GOP Supreme Court contender in the counties around Milwaukee that are traditionally conservative strongholds. But the sour winners are still complaining. We can never, ever, ever in this state or this country have a repeat of voter suppression tactics that we saw on Tuesday, Ms. Karofsky declared Monday night. Without irony or apology, conservatives will still have a 4-3 majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and she is setting the judges up for political attack if they rule against Democrats in a looming case to remove 20 or 200,000 voters who hadn't confirmed their address for the rolls. The voter suppression cry is a political strategy, not a genuine problem. Expect Democrats to promote the myth from here to November to energize voters who are lukewarm on Joe Biden. So there you go. That's the new cry, voter suppression, because everybody's trying to get the... uh, the uh, voter rolls cleaned up from all the dead people and all the people who have moved. That way uh, there can't be uh, false voter rolls out there. But it is what it is. Next article. This is the guy that's supposed to beat Trump. 
Democrat leaders seem determined to ignore Democratic voters. Some Democrats must be wondering why their party asked them to show up and vote in this year's primaries and caucuses. Over the last two months, Democratic voters nationwide have made it abundantly clear that they do not want a candidate promoting massive structural change in American government and society. But the party leadership seems determined to give them one anyway. Beginning in South Carolina in late February and continuing across the country through March and into April, Democrats soundly rejected the most radical option. This column noted in March, Exit polling data published by the Washington Post shows that across the Super Tuesday states, most Democratic voters considered themselves conservative, moderate, or somewhat liberal, while a minority called themselves very liberal. Most don't regard incoming quality as the most important issue facing the country, and their votes made clear they aren't seeking the socialist revolution promised by Bernie Sanders. Now, that their votes have spoken, party leaders seem to be systematically ignoring the message. A journal editorial noted this week that after vanquishing Mr. Sanders, Mr. Biden, Biden is now rapidly moving towards Sandinista positions on health care and student lending. Mr. Biden ran in Democratic primaries as the relatively moderate defender of the presidential legacy of Barack Obama. But this week, while formally endorsing Mr. Biden, even Mr. Obama rejected the Obama legacy. He lauded Mr. Sanders while rejecting the ancient Obama governing agenda as too timid for our modern times. Perhaps Mr. Obama and other party bosses are revealing their true beliefs. Or maybe it's just a panic response to the usual lack of enthusiasm for Mr. Biden. Despite strong polling, Mr. Biden doesn't appear to have a particularly enthusiastic following. Kevin Roos reports in the New York Times, Joe Biden is very famous, but you wouldn't know it from looking at his YouTube channel. The virtual crickets that greet many of his appearances have become a source of worry for some Democrats who see his sluggish performance online as a bad omen for his electoral chances in November. This video is two days old and it's sitting at 20,000 views. One commentator wrote under a recent video of Mr. Biden, This is a guy that is supposed to beat Trump? Mr. Roos adds that evidence of a Biden enthusiasm deficit is not limited to YouTube. Mr. Biden's first virtual town hall last month was marred by technical problems and some of his other digital experiments like sophomore campaign podcasts Here's the Deal, which did not rank among the top 100 podcasts on Apple Podcasts of this week, have not gone as well as hoped. Joe Rogan, a popular talk show host with an enormous YouTube following, endorsed Mr. Sanders this year. After Mr. Sanders withdrew from the race, Mr. Rogan stated that he would prefer to vote for Mr. Trump than Mr. Biden. 
saying of the former vice president, the guy can barely remember what he's talking about while he's talking. CNN Harry Eaton writes that Mr. Biden needs all the help he can get from the likes of Mr. Obama and Sanders to win over young voters, according to Mr. Eaton. Biden, at this point, seems to be underperforming 2016 Democrat presidential nominee Hillary Clinton with the block of voters. The final pre-election polls among registered voters had her leading President Trump among 18 to 34-year-olds by 22-point margin. To see where Biden is, I took an average of the last five high-quality national probability polls with an 18 to 34 year old voter breakdown. Biden leads Trump by 14 points on average among them. He is, in other words, doing about 10 points worse than Clinton did, even as he is leading Trump by a wider margin, six points overall, than Clinton was in the closing days of the 2016 campaign. Mr. Biden's sharp left turn on policy may help him secure some young Sanders voters, but since there was demonstratedly more Biden voters than Sanders voters, one wonders how many aging non-radicals will come along for the leftward ride. Team Biden may believe that the response to the Wuhan flu is changing our politics, Are they betting that the lockdown wrecking ball currently at work on the foundation of the U.S. US economy will make government activism more popular? Many unemployed Americans are surely hoping that lockdowns are becoming less popular. Andrew Resitasi and Sabrina Sidaquari reports in the journal. President Trump is planning to outline Thursday new federal guidelines for opening up the country in a bid to limit the mounting economic fallout from the Wuhan flu outbreak. The president is expected to announce a plan during an evening White House news conference to help state beginning reopening businesses and getting America back to work, starting with those states with the fewest confirmed Wuhan flu cases. White House officials said the White House declined to comment on the guidelines. An end to the war on America's economy would be a welcome news. Here's hoping that politicians don't condition the armistice on the existence of technology with an esteemed expert imagines will be available soon. As for the new and not improved Joe Biden, perhaps he should consider the views of the people who who voting for him. Well, that's a good article, but I don't think uh, Mr. Biden uh, really understands where he's at or what he's doing today. So, but either way, that's not my problem. I don't intend to vote for him anyway. All right, here's a good little gadget that uh, you will find useful during during your... uh, during your uh, stay at home, if you're trying to reach family, I, I've used it a number of times. It's called Zoom. Uh, but there are articles out there saying that China's uh, tapping in. But I don't think your family conversation is that important. So that's why we use it. Verizon buys Zoom conferencing rival Blue Jeans. Acquisition comes as the Wuhan flu spurs unprecedented work-from-home arrangements. Most people use uh, Zoom as a business app. 
Verizon Communications Incorporated has agreed to buy video conferencing company Blue Jeans Network Incorporated as an unprecedented number of people work remotely because of the Wuhan flu pandemic. Carriers will pay less than $500 million for the Zoom Video Communications Incorporated rival, a person familiar with the term said. The deal announced Thursday and previously reported by the Wall Street Journal is part of an effort to bolster Verizon's business group as the carrier rolls out faster 5G networks and pitches new applications of wireless technology to its largest corporate customers. The conferencing service gives the carrier the ability to help its corporate customers bill telemedicine, remote learning, and virtual training services, said Tammy Irwin, head of the Verizon Business Unit. The platform's security and integration with workplace collaboration tool like Microsoft Teams was part of its appeal, she added. The deal comes as a record number of workers and students log on remotely using video conferencing tools, including Zoom, Cisco Systems Incorporated, WebEx, and Microsoft Corporation Skype. Previously, people were shy on camera. People thought people working from home were not effective. All of that has been dispelled, says Chris Ramakrishnan co-founder and executive chairman of Blue Jeans. Blue Jeans, the company's brand name, is aimed at businesses rather than consumer users with encrypted video conferencing. It has 15,000 customers and isn't available free to consumers as services such as Skype and Zoom are. Zoom chief Eric Wan, that's Y-U-A-N, or Yoon, excuse me, vowed earlier this month to create end-to-end encryption to keep meetings and conversations on its platform secure after the company faced public backlash over its security practices. As the system's popularity took off amid the pandemic, conferences on its platform were repeatedly subject to Zoom bombing, where bad actors gained unauthorized access to meetings and shared hate speech or pornography. Discussions about a deal between Verizon and BlueJean began last year. This privately held company in San Jose, California, offers video conferencing, team meetings, and webinars. It counts Facebook Incorporated, LinkedIn, Zillow, and Intuit Incorporation among its customers. BlueJean, which recently became profitable, has seen usage surge as the pandemic was founded in 2009. It has in the past raised $175 million in ventured capital from firms including Excel Partners and Battery Ventures. Executives from both companies said video conferencing provides crisper video and audio on 5G networks and can be integrated with new augmented reality as that technology develops. So there you go. So, but Zoom, Zoom, you can download on your phone or on your computer and have video conferencing that way. So there you go. That is a good way to stay connected with family if you're looking for it. And and since you're private, most people won't video bomb you. (laughs) Unless it's one of your family members. There you go. 
And here we go. If you're an iPhone user, Apple's new 399 iPhone SE. Long live the small screen and home buttons. There's a brand new iPhone. And by brand new, I mean an iPhone that looks like an old iPhone with the new, with the name of an even older iPhone. Don't worry. I'm here for you in this confusing and difficult time. Announced on Wednesday, the 399 second generation iPhone SE is now Apple's most affordable smartphone. It looks almost exactly like the iPhone 8, which it replaces, and was previously priced at $499, yet has a faster processor and the same lower price as the previous iPhone SE, which the company stopped selling in September 2018. The new model will be available for pre-order this Friday and will begin arriving April 24th by mail, given that most Apple stores are closed. Sure, it might seem like minor stuff, especially against the backdrop of, you know, an economy and society ravaged by a pandemic, but there are people who have been anxiously awaiting this very iPhone for years. Can you believe that? But either way, <laughs> those who don't want a phone the size of an Olympic pool, those who love the traditional home button like their firstborn, those who think phones above the price of $700 are totally ludicrous, the SE's traditional home button with the embedded fingerprint sensor and its smaller 4.7-inch screen fly in the face of the iPhone 11, iPhone 11 Pro, iPhone 11 Pro Max, which have screens 5.8 inches or larger and start at $699, which I personally have, and I love it. But what exactly is new here? And is $399 actually a good value for what you get? I spent time talking with an Apple executives to get some answers. What actually is new here? Good luck spotting the very, very minor physical difference between an iPhone 8 and an iPhone SE. Hint, look at the location of the Apple logo on the back. Inside, however, this is a very different phone. It has Apple's latest A13 Bionic processor, the same exact one in the higher-end iPhones, that enables faster performance across the entire system, according to Apple, and also unlocks some camera tricks. The single 12-megapixel rear camera supports smart HDR portrait mode for people. Sorry, no beautiful blur around Fido's face, and can record 4K video. I look forward to testing out the camera in my full review. The 399 model also comes with 64 gigabyte of storage, which is good. The largest 256 gigabyte model is priced at 549, which to me, to me, I'm talking about me, not her, is a good price because I have a 256 gigabyte and it's good for me. All are available black, white, and red, which is nice. I have a red one. But isn't this screen sort of big? There are some out there who may be disappointed by the iPhone SE's 4.7 inch screen, considering that the old iPhone SE model after the iPhone 5 had a four inch screen. To that, Apple says this is a very popular phone size. 
It has sold more than 500 million 4.7 inch iPhone screens, which is a good size. Still, in comparison to other iPhones on the shelves, the new SE is basically the size of a ladybug. You compare the 699 iPhone 11's display is 6.1 inches, the 999 iPhone 11 Pro is 5.8 inches, and the $1,000.99 iPhone 11 Pro Max is 6.5 inches. What is missing? If you look at the tech specs for the higher-end iPhones, you'll find a few th things missing here. Although most are camera-related, there's no ultra-wide or telephoto cameras, no night mode for taking better photos in the dark, no facial recognitions. Oh, and yeah, no headphone port. The battery life is the same as the iPhone 8, according to Apple. What about the new iPhones coming in the fall? Also missing is whatever will come to those brand new iPhones arriving this fall. According to reports, the standout feature of the new iPhone, the iPhone 12, well, they really haven't named it yet, will be a revamped design of the 5G connectivity. Clearly, this isn't the phone to buy if you're looking for the cutting edge, but the nice thing about it is that with the new processor, it will get iOS software updates for many years ahead. Apple is likely to stop supporting the older iPhone SE with iOS updates soon, which is true. Should I wait for, uh, for 5G? Given that uh, it took Apple four years to release a new iPhone SE, it is fairly safe to say it will be a while before this sort of smaller, cheaper model gets the faster connectivity. But hey... Maybe by then, 5G networks will be available in more places and we'll actually know what's good for on a smartphone. All in all, the new SE looks like a great deal, but I'll reserve my final recommendation until my review. Have questions? I love to hear them. So that's joanna.stern at wallstreetjournal.com. So if you want to send her any tech questions about the new iPhone coming out, you're more than welcome to. And looking at that, and let's see what our next article can be. Oh yeah, the most popular thing here. When the stimulus check in your bank account isn't what you expected. Some Americans find too little others too much as IRS sends out more than 80 million payments. The U.S. government sent more than 80 million dollars direct deposited stimulus payments this week and the amount popping up in bank accounts are coming as a surprise to some Americans. Some are finding less than they expected. Others think they are getting too much some say money is going into bank accounts they don't recognize and still others are struggling to decipher error messages from an internal revenue service website. When I looked at it, I was like, I don't get it, says Nicole Ewins of Warner Robins, Georgia, who was missing the $500 payment for her 21-month-old son. That is a lot of diapers. As the government tries to help Americans cope with the rapid economic fallout of the Wuhan flu outbreak, there is inevitably a trade-off between speed and precision. The IRS has done an incredible job under incredible pressure in an awful condi condition, says Nina Olson, 
who recently retired as National Taxpayer Advocate at the IRS. Excuse me. Compared with 2008, the last time the government sent out similar payments, the IRS is moving much faster. Faster. With the first payment coming within weeks instead of months, in 2008, an Inspector General's report found that the IRS correctly calculated 99.6% of payments. The IRS could have tried to let people check the financial information that's on file before sending money. Instead, Ms. Olson said, the emphasis was on get the money out fast and we will deal with the mistakes and snafus downstream. Christian Lamb found a welcome $1,200 in her bank account and spent it on accumulated bills. But she didn't get the additional $1,500 she expected for her three children under age 12 and she can't figure out why. I only can just sit around and wait and just try to survive, said Miss Lamb, who works at Home Health Care in Columbus, Georgia. It is hard being a single mother of three. The economics just change like this. Brian Lusher of Prescott, Arizona, has the opposite problem. A $1,200 stimulus payment appeared in his, his account he created for his stepmother's finances after she died last year. He is going to leave the money there and wait for government instructions. I was just astounded to see this thing hit her account. Some say the money appears to have gone to the wrong bank account or that they were having troubles getting information from an IRS tool launch this week that is supposed to let people track payments and update bank information. This time, the payments are $1,200 per adult and $500 per child. Recipients must have a Social Security number to qualify and dependents over 16 are ineligible. Payments shrink and then disappear as an individual income rises above $75,000 and a married couple's income rises above $150,000. The law requires the IRS to use a 2019 tax return to determine eligibility and 2018 returns if those aren't available. In some cases, the IRS seems to have used 2018 information even from people who filed 2019 returns. Alan Cabrero of Piscataway, New Jersey, and his wife filed their 2019 returns in January, claiming their two-year-old and their six-month-old child and received their regular tax refund. But his stimulus payment was $2,900, not $3,400, for married couples with two children. That money that we didn't receive, it is money that I would use to feed my family for three weeks, he said. Susan Brown of Detroit, who was expecting 1200 got through on an IRS website and found that the money had been deposited in a bank account, just not her bank account, and she isn't sure what to do now. You can't talk to anybody at the IRS, she said. There's nobody answering any of the phones. The IRS doesn't have a clear guidance for people who think they got incorrect amounts for those with payments sent to a bank account that have since been closed. The IRS says it will see that rejected payment and mail a paper check. Some can use the Get My Payment tool at the IRS website to update their bank information, but the system may not allow such changes if the payment has already been processed. After every payment, the IRS is sending letters within 15 days with instructions in case people didn't get the money. Those who got less than they should have received can claim the rest 
when they filed 2020 tax returns in early 2021. It is trickier for those who think they got too much. If payments amount are technically right, someone whose income is too high now but was in the right range in 2018, the payment doesn't have to be returned, but the law gives the Treasury Department authority to prevent multiple payments to the same person. Drew Persons of Baltimore isn't eligible because of his income, and his 20-year-old son shouldn't be either, but he is claimed as a dependent. But his son filed a 2019 tax return after working a summer job, and $1,200 showed up in his bank account. When Mr. Persons saw the payment, he said he woke his son up and double-checked his tax return to see that dependent status. I advised him not to spend it, Mr. Persons said. That is wise advice. So, there you go. A little bit of everything this week for you. I hope you enjoyed the articles I selected for you. So, until next week, this is Bill Feltham. I hope you have a blessed week. Once again, don't be afraid. I hope you had a nice holiday. This is Bill Feltham. God bless you. God bless your week. In Jesus' name. Good day.